This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, youngest of five kids, so big family, and everybody loved music, so it was always kind of spinning on the record player and different genres, and probably was exposed to more because of the way that it wasn't in headphones at that point. It's like the record player is a central piece in the house, and so the way music reflected the personalities of my siblings and my parents and um, kind of informed who we are and um, the soundtrack of our lives. For the last 16 years, Sandra McCracken's been carving out a life writing and recording music. Her records have always had their roots in Americana, but they range from the sparse and straightforward songs of Gypsy Flat Road to the dense and surprising arrangements of Desire Like Dynamite. She's also recorded several albums of songs for the church, both original songs and old hymns set to new melodies. The variety in her catalog reflects the variety of the music in her house, especially the contrast between the music of her father and her mother. The counterpoint is so different. My mom, like, listened to church music, and uh, my dad still loves the loudest rock and roll he can find, favoring kind of blues and even um, kind of ska music or hippies. I mean, like, anything he, you know, that will play for an extended period of time at loud decibels, he's into it. (laughs) From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and my guest today is singer-songwriter Sandra McCracken. We'll talk about how she found her way into a life of making music, the importance of place, creative collaboration, and partnerships, how being a mother made her a better artist, and more. When I was really little, as we had so much music around the home, I started asking, I don't know what the what the spark was, but I started asking to play the piano and I just kind of begged and pleaded. And we didn't have a piano. My mom actually said like, well, let's start praying about it. So we, for like several years, we just prayed about it at night. And then we ended up having some friends, family friends that had a piano, their kids were grown and they let us borrow their upright for me to take lessons and learn. And as soon as we, I was probably seven, I started immediately when it was in the home, I started kind of singing, playing, exploring, and it became part of that music training and I would play songs on the radio. I loved show tunes and church music and the hymnal and pop songs and and would write songs even not knowing I was really writing songs, but just kind of exploring that from when I was really young. I don't think it was ever a conscious thought other than a very uh, pervasive desire to pursue it. As she grew up, the music she listened to had a gravity that pulled her towards Nashville. A lot of the music I grew up with was coming out of Nashville. Johnny Cash and things that I didn't know would be labeled as country music, but at the time it was like kind of pop 
country and the Eagles, or which wasn't from Nashville, but it just had this like Americana sound. And that was probably a undercurrent of a draw here, as well as like artists like Amy Grant and seeing her. I don't know how old I was, but I remember watching her play a concert at Six Flags. And I didn't know much about the genre that she was coming from, but saw her like singing and she was barefoot on the stage and just had so much joy in what she did. And I was captivated by that and and started paying attention. So after high school, she applied to Belmont University in Nashville, which is well known for its music program. It was there that she connected with Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF. And that particular RUF group gave birth to Indelible Grace, a collective of singer-songwriters who wrote new melodies for old hymns. Kevin Twitt, the RUF leader, started Indelible Grace there in Nashville, but his connection to Sandra stretched back much earlier. When I first moved to Nashville, I came to go to Belmont, but I actually knew Kevin Twitt from St. Louis. He was in seminary at a parallel time when I was in high school, and we both led worship at a church in St. Louis together, and that's where we met, and actually it's how I learned about Belmont. And then when I moved to town, my parents were out of town for some reason, and when I moved to college, and so we loaded up his big green van with like 40 boxes of stuff like <laughs> and he drove me to college and he introduced me to RUF at Vanderbilt and then by my second year of college we started the Belmont RUF as well so it was a really kind of an intersection of a lot of things both the music and the hymns what then became the indelible grace songs but like most things it was really just born out of friendship That RUF group was full of young musicians like Sandra that went on to have recording careers. People like Andrew Osenga, Matthew Perryman-Jones, Matthew Smith, Jeremy Casella, and more. At RUF, they wrote new melodies for hymns that Kevin Twitt introduced them to. Hymns by people like Isaac Watts, John Newton, William Cooper, and like this song, Anne Steele. Those years at Belmont also provided a place where, as a songwriter and a performer, there were lots of opportunities to learn and grow. There wasn't a big aha moment, a discovery, where someone came along and offered her a big check and said, hey, we're going to make you a star. Instead, there was a slow, steady process of growth into what she calls a blue-collar life as a musician. The program at Belmont was so appealing to me because I could study the music that I had always done as the side project, you know, became the main thing. And I remember looking at the course descriptions and thinking, I can really get away with this? Like, I can do this for <laughs> for a grade or, you know. And it was, um, it was a good season for me. One of the places where I feel like I was... I grew and was strengthened was being in a community where we would often just sit with a guitar and somebody would make spaghetti and we'd all hang out in an apartment and play songs. And sometimes we would sing songs that we already knew or songs that we were working on. And I think that was a process of exploration that was really important. And then it gave kind of more of a substance to it, to where when there were opportunities 
out in in the community, like in coffee shops or bookstores, those are, you know, like the next step of the circle. And you just kind of keep broadening out as far as do people want to hear these songs? Are these for me? Are these from for my friends? And or are they songs other people would want to join in on um, in some way or another? So it's very explorative. I think maybe because it's baby steps, it's not all that intimidating. If there's not some grandiose idea that you're trying to go after, it's just like, I don't know, we're just trying it, you know, we're practicing. And then little by little it grows. And I think it's not always the case for people, but for me, when I look back, the slow growth has been so rewarding that it wasn't overnight and all of a sudden I'm like on some big record label and having to chase that. I think that would have been very shocking to my system. But some people do that and have to really navigate that. Um, and some people have done that very well. So it was never a dream for you, like, I want to see my name in lights and I want to, you know, was that I, ever part of the vision? I don't think so. I was kind of a shy kid and still am. There's part of me that's like, that there's a push and pull to that because I resist being the center of attention in that way. And yet over the years, I think God is... And this idea, this mysterious idea of calling, I think he's invited me to come out in my voice and in what it is to just kind of be myself in front of a group of people, how to share in a way that doesn't, it's not like, oh, I, you know, I got to be an entertainer. I think a lot of times I felt that pressure for many years where it was like, well, if I do this, I've got to really know how to make people laugh and be charming. And I don't think that's what I've been called to. I think there are people that will develop that as a craft and as a form of art. And for me, it's been about peeling away those expectations of trying to please other people and just show up, both in front of an audience or in when I'm sitting down in my room with a song. She graduated from Belmont in 1999 and collected the best songs she'd written over those years. That became my first record and launched me into the blue-collar work of like, okay, get your guitar and put it in the back of the car and go see where you can play, you know, bookstores, coffee shops, all kinds of stuff. I heard, uh, maybe this isn't true, but um, that like after your first record came out, Buddy Miller reached out to you. Mm. Is that a true story? It is a true story. Buddy Miller is one of these legendary Nashville producers. He's worked with Patty Griffin, Emmylou Harris, Robert Plant, and many, many others. He's a brilliant guitar player and songwriter himself. It was my uh, second album, and it's called Gypsy Flat Road. And there was a local radio station here in Nashville that was playing one of the songs. It was, you know, like kind of the college station. It was not anything most people would hear. And I guess Buddy listened to that a lot and heard one of the songs from the record and like called the station and pursued it and um, ended up getting to meet him and then collaborate a little bit. So I opened some shows for them, and then during that project, sent him the record, and he sang on a song called I Boast No More and kind of wrote that background part for it, which was really, really great. It's like I can't hear that song without his his voice in it. It's just perfect. (laughs) Thanks for asking. No, that's a great story. (laughs) No more, my God. In some ways, that's probably more of a measurement of what I care about. It's like people that make art that I think is really exceptional. And if and if they kind of stamp approval on what you're doing, it's like, oh man, that is, that's it for me. Like, I'm really grateful for those opportunities. And just a couple of weeks ago, actually, I had sent him by email a download of the new record. 
And he responded and was very gracious and then left me a message. And I'll probably always save that message from Buddy Miller <laughs> saying, <laughs> saying, well done. You know, it's, those are significant moments for me where you feel like affirmed in what you do value. Sandra has been performing and recording for about 20 years now. There's a consistency to her work, and it reveals an artist with a clear sense of what her strengths are and how creativity flows in her life, which is something that every artist and really every person needs in order to do their best work. I asked her how she understands those gifts and how it shapes the way she writes. There's a wide range of how people engage in the creative process. For me, I err more on the side of waiting for it to spark. There's discipline in that to some degree, but it's it's um, more that the art itself is kind of compelling me. So there'll be a moment, a lot of times if there's a surge of emotion around a circumstance or something that's happening, or if there's displacement. Like I notice I'll write a lot these days when the pace of life is pretty, um, not frantic, but it's it's definitely moving along. I feel like when I'm in an airplane and I have a few hours that there's no one calling, there's no expectation, I can sit down with a pen and paper and usually the creativity is right there for me when there's space. The other thing would be I've noticed as the discipline part of it is trying to carve out those windows of space. So being intentional about white space, which is also like another word I would use for it is Sabbath. And it may not be strictly a Sunday, but trying to find spacious time where you're not being productive, where you're not doing anything, you're not taking care of somebody, you're not preoccupied. And maybe you are preoccupied, but just leaving some white space. And maybe not right then, but usually the songs will come out within a week or two of that. And it there seems to be a correlation between rest and fruitfulness that's almost kind of like that agrarian metaphor of crop rotation where you leave part of it alone and then the land becomes more fruitful when you let it rest for a little bit rather than trying to plant it all the time and be so efficient no matter what your vocation I think that feels like that's a part of fruitfulness is like just give yourself permission to just be Was it always that way in writing, or did it develop that way, I guess? Did you find that? And if you did, how did you find that? I think I have observed it more recently, but I think it's always been this way. There's always been kind of surges of creativity that'll come out of nowhere, and I just have to grab them when I can. After I had children, so my kids are seven and nine, that actually was a very fruitful time musically as well. Like I think that those years that I thought, oh, I'm just gonna be, you know, doing laundry and piles of dishes. It's like, it was that, but there were also songs coming left and right. And I didn't tour as much. So there was different modes of of output and input. But since that time, I think the creativity has continued to increase. And as a woman, that feels really significant to know that even when you give yourself to the art of caregiving, in a way that being a mother does, you know, it's it's not something to be afraid of, but it actually causes multiplication of your heart. And it's like this, is it an Isaiah where it says, um, widen the, the stakes of your tent, you know, like make more room because God is going to fill it. And I think in a sense, when we give ourselves to love and, and we say yes to self-sacrifice in those ways, we end up receiving a lot in the process, which is counterintuitive. Yeah, that's, that's what I was just going to say it's really counterintuitive because even just sort of the cultural narrative of, you know, you have kids and your life is over. Yeah. You have kids and they're all consuming and you don't have time for anything anymore. Yeah. Um, 
but for you, you didn't experience it that way. There's fatigue and there's a, you know, there's a more of an urgency. So if I have an idea, I got to find a little window to chase it down. And that's harder to do with two young children. But it does, it kind of invites them into it as well. And it probably keeps me from being as codependent a mother as I would naturally be because there's not just complete preoccupation with one thing, whether it's the music or the family. It's like you just can't control it all. So you have to kind of learn to play and learn to be present in it, you know, with what you're given. Something else that's evident in Sandra's work is a gift for collaboration. Indelible Grace came from a community of songwriters. Rain for Roots, a children's music project that she's a part of, is a collaboration between writers like Flo Paris, Ellie Holcomb, Katie Bowser, and Sally Lloyd-Jones. She told me her more recent albums have been collaborative too, recorded live and in the moment. I think as youngest child, collaboration has always been really appealing to me. There's a strength to it and there's kind of a shadowy side of it. The strength is that I remember looking up to my siblings and just thinking they've always kind of been my heroes. So whatever they said, whatever they wanted to do, what do you want to listen to? What are we what are we doing, guys? You know, I was kind of just along for the ride with that and loved it. And I think a lot of that has shaped me. I think the the shadowy side is that I think God calls us each to speak into our lives and into wherever he's put us. He's he's called us to show up. So I think the harder thing in collaboration has been trusting my own voice and my own instincts and speaking those in a way that's that's humble and, and it kind of joins with the other voices in the room and not to be overpowered by like dominant ideas. I think a great collaboration is is hospitality. Henry Nowen talks about hospitality in terms of making space for each other. So if you're not okay with your own kind of loneliness or insecurity or whatever it is that you bring into that room, like when you sort of make peace with that, then you begin to invite other people with all that they bring. And then there's a center in the in the room for really special things to happen because it's not just you. It, it's a combined effort that I think we're made for combined efforts and I think combined efforts show a wider view, really, of God's character and how He's reflected in all of us in different ways, both personality and things we've experienced in our own stories, the ways we've survived our own stories. All of that is coming into the room. And when we join those things in collaboration and healthy collaborations, we see more of a fuller picture of who God is. And ultimately, we're not safe with each other, and that's okay. So when you kind of hold that place of saying, okay, God, you're my safety. I'm going to risk being vulnerable, even if there's this. And that might mean you don't collaborate with the person that mows over you every time. But maybe it, it means you seek out other collaborators that learn and and mirror and are brought into that same spirit of hospitality. So if I'm recording, a lot of times I'll put engineers in place on the later part of the process, people that I really trust their ears, um, working with Russ Long He's mixed the last couple of records, and it's like somebody that I know is going to be fine-tuning those things. And then along the way, other other friends like Isaac Wardell and Greg LaFollette, like friends that know my sensibilities and can speak into it and say, hey, I think it's this or I see this, help to give shape to it so that when I'm there, I can just completely be in the moment and and let the other people bring the polish Maybe, because I'm not, I mean, I'd like to be polished. I'm just not. I think learning to accept that about myself and about my house, I'd rather it be hospitable than tidy. Although, man, there's that's a war inside because I want it 
to be nice, you know? I want people to think it's great. So I think it's, it applies kind of all in all of life that the value for me is being in the moment. As an artist, Sandra has a foot in a couple of different worlds. She's a singer-songwriter, but she's also a church musician. And when you look at her records, she doesn't make a whole lot of distinction between one or the other. As I look back over it, I think when I was a kid, I grew up with the robust theology that would say all of life is sacred. So you don't have to just do church music for that to be something that God would be pleased with. Learning from writers like Francis Schaeffer from when I was really young, um, just that all of life belongs to God and he he has authority and lordship over it. So I've, I've loved exploring that some and in different kind of venues and writing songs that are both narrative and personal and relational and also sa- like sacred. I, I would say like that is all sacred as well as very explicitly biblical texts. But in the last few years, I can't seem to get enough of the writing directly from biblical poetry. It just feels so much more satisfying than contriving new ways of saying something. It's like, I just want to keep going back there because David probably already said it better than I would. And I also like that because of the translation changes, the the text is so much more interesting to me when it meanders the way it does. So it's not as tidy with a four rhyme and a you know a two bar and what. I mean, it's just there'll be these long phrases, and I kind of like the challenge of trying to work that in. Yeah, so that has been, some of it's just been a creative interest, and then some of it has been a personal interest in the last few years, where I think that my particular coordinates of calling have have gone more deeply into the church and my love for the church. I grew up singing in church when I was very little, and then when I moved to Nashville, it seemed wise to be guarded against Christian music as a as an entity, especially as I was being so um, I was just so malleable at that point in time, and I think I was protected from kind of going down the route of like, oh, this is what you should do to make Christian music. So I stayed kind of off the grid for all those formative years in my twenties, and 
And now I feel like as I've come back to that childhood, that girl that sang in the in the choir and played the offertory, there's just, it feels so truly my own. It feels like it's part of me and that God has given it back to me and surprised me with it. Um, this sense of belonging and, and identity that's, it's not that my identity's in that music, but it feels so central to who I am. It comes so natural to me to ask and to participate in what it is to love the church, starting with my local church. Yeah. So, you, you took on a role at the church, right? Yes. You're on the staff. That's another one of the spokes. Um, I am on staff at a small Anglican parish. We've been going for about two years. And when I started that, that was such a gift to me. And I think... That has continued to open my affections toward what it is to know and be known in a community and how music basically grows out of that. Like church music starts there, and I feel protective of that, um, and I feel most at home there when I get to spend, you know, drop the kids off at school and I spend the morning with the liturgy or what's happening next week, what are the readings, and pulling in songs and writing new songs and imagining how that collaboration of that service can look for our music team and for our congregation. That's That feels so primary to what it is to write songs for the larger church because then those songs are not abstract. They're very particular. And um, I think God has made us particular and he's given us particularly to the people in our lives, um, those whose lives are closely linked with ours. It can be gritty, but the more we lean into that, I think the more we are really shaped um, in his likeness. I had the revelation a couple of weeks ago sitting at our church where I work at church and I sing church music and, you know, but being there, I was like, I think I would go here. I think I would do this. I really love this. And I think the participation of that feels like it really centers me. Well, it really roots you in a sense of place too. I imagine a lot of the songwriting you're doing now, you can't disconnect it from that place and from those people that you're serving. Yeah. I remember hearing Harold Best a few years ago, he's a Bach scholar, make the comment that Bach, Bach didn't set out to make great art. He was just getting ready for Sunday. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, me too. I need to um, cross-stitch that. <laughs> <laughs> my feet are strong. My eyes are clear. I cannot see the way from here but on we go he knows the way and in his arms he keeps me safe Sandra's most recent two records are Psalms and God's Highway. Both are songs for the church, and they have a similar feel. They're warm and intimate, and the production is stripped back a bit from the projects that precede them. When I look back at Psalms and God's Highway, they they do feel very sisterly. They're very connected. Psalms, there was a fragility to that. Going into it, I think I didn't really know what to expect. And even in the vocals and the way that the performances unfolded, it was it felt like there was healing that was happening and coming up under that fragility. 
And there was joy in it in surprising ways, even joy and sorrow in some of these things that are juxtaposed that I think are juxtaposed in the music as well as in my in my heart at the time. On God's Highway, there's a continuation of that, a continuing to hold up these two themes of sorrow and joy. But there's a little more, um, I think the strength is coming into it. Not a confidence of, of ego or of, but a confidence of God's strength and, and this like, this authority that says, I will do it. I will accomplish it. So leaning into God's promises in that way, I, I guess my hope for the album is that God's spirit would bring healing in through it. That was my prayer for Psalms. And I've seen and gotten to witness that so many times in people's stories and conversations and in my own story. And I think for this one that it would, that it would just propel into hope and strength for people as they hear it. And that even if they're in the middle of crisis still, that there would be something kind of carrying them forward. What I love about Sandra's story and her work is the way it reveals an openness to whatever God might have in store. She's a shy person who became a performer, an artist who became a mother and discovered a deeper well of creativity, and a singer-songwriter who became a church musician and discovered a deep love for the church. The range of her work reveals a devotion to the craft of songwriting and a well-honed set of skills. Her songs for the church serve that body well, and her albums like Desire Like Dynamite, which actually is my favorite record of hers, reveals a flourishing imagination. It's cinematic and beautiful, and the songs wrestle with deep things. You should probably just go get it right now. Thanks for listening. Stay with us for a quick preview of our next episode. But first, uh, this episode was produced and written by me. It was mixed by Mark Owens at ResonateRecordings.com. Special thanks to Scott Slusher and Lachlan Coffee. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. Chris Bennett designed our logos. Our theme song and part of today's soundtrack is from Roman Candle. You can check them out at romancandlemusic.com. Thanks to Sandra McCracken for letting us use her music as the soundtrack to the episode. Go get her records, including several of them that are available on vinyl at sandramccracken.com. We'll be back next week, where my guest will be the writer, cultural critic, and all-around magical person, David Dark. I actually mentioned to Sandra that David would be on our next episode, and she had this to say. Oh, I love him. Yeah, he's an existential prince. He just sits there and just drops bombs. Now, seriously, who doesn't want to have bombs dropped on them by an existential prince? Don't miss it. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, if you like what you're hearing, take a minute and spread the word. Post about us on social media and maybe go leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps us out. We'll see you next week.
Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.